Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are going to cover why Concord matters for the Saxon Visitation Articles of 1528. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this matter today is Chaplain Sean Denzer. He is the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and Chaplain at the Synod's International Center. Chaplain Denzer, welcome back to Concord Matters. It's great to be back. Always great to have you on. Always great, deep, rich content. I'm remembering maybe a year ago at this point or so, we did a whole kind of mini-series with you looking at worship. And you got back to me and said, that you had this idea to take a look at these Saxon visitation articles from 1528. And I want to set this out here right away that, one, I'm really excited about this. I'm really glad that you had this idea. Two, that this is not in our Book of Concord, but it does lead to things that are in our Book of Concord. And the Saxon visitation articles that are attached to the appendix of our Book of Concord we're of 1592, so big time difference there. And we've done a show kind of covering those Saxon visitation articles. So I guess a good thing to kind of get us started here then, Chaplain Denzer, give us a little context. What are these visitation articles about? How did they come to be? Just give us a little background here. Definitely. So as many people know, Luther's real interest was theology, of course. He dug into the scriptures. And that's where the source of his teachings come from, is from the Holy Scriptures. He was far less interested, at least at first, in the idea of organizing a church. It was never his intention really to form a church around his name. It's an accident of history that we are Lutherans in a sense. But the reality of the Lutheran churches, the, the preachers, the, the evangelical movement going on there in the German territories is that there was a need to have some organization, to have some church structure even, and most importantly, to figure out how in the world are we going to pay all these evangelical pastors. You know, we're out from the administration of the Pope. That's wonderful in some ways, but we got to have something or it's all going to collapse. And so the visitations come out of this. It's kind of twofold. Initially, there's one of the princes that would really like Luther to do it. Philip of Hesse in 1526 already says, hey, we got to we got to figure this out. Uh, he starts making a church order, and Luther says, no, we don't want church order. We don't want Moses in charge. We want the gospel to take root. We want the spirit to change the hearts of the people. Then they'll be willing to, you know, obey laws as well and do what's best for the community. But even by the end of that year, there's already other troubles. In particular, the tendency of the nobility to swipe the monastery land. So this is difficult for us to understand, uh, but 
everything is endowed. There's all these patronages, kind of like an endowed chair at a university. In the Middle Ages, that's the way it is with everything. Preacher positions are endowed. Church offices are endowed. Monasteries have this land that's set aside for the church's use. So when there's no longer any monks occupying these monasteries, when maybe there aren't 10 priests needed at every church because we're not sacrificing on the side altars for the living and the dead, what do you do with all these pots of money, these endowments, right? They start to get snapped up in kind of a nefarious way by some nobility. And Luther says, that's not the way it ought to be. They go to the church, you know, if they're not going to be used for these false things, like priests saying masses on the side, they ought to be used for education especially, but certainly to support the church workers. So he, as well as his elector, John, are coming to this idea at a similar time there in 1526 and 1527. The first visitations, which is to say an official person coming from the prince or at his command to go and inspect what's going on in the churches, the first visitations are really only theological, trying to ascertain are these pastors accepting the evangelical faith? Are they going to teach rightly according to the scriptures? Are they competent to do it, or were they just kind of lazy bellies that had come into this endowment and were living the easy life, right? But pretty soon it moves into what we would say are very practical matters of, are the pastors being paid? Do they have a place to live? Are they in danger of quitting because nobody's supporting them? And At the same time, Luther has in his concern not only maybe the leaders, the nobility that might not be providing, but he also has in mind just the entire population that maybe they don't support the church, maybe they don't go to church. This is something we're familiar with from the catechisms, where Luther just laments that now that the gospel has come, everybody lives like pigs, right? They're using their Christian freedom in scare quotes to live wicked lives, which, of course, Paul condemns in Romans chapter 6. So that is kind of the context in which Luther's, uh, the main visitations begin. Uh, They start in 1527, and at Luther's design, kind of, they send out two theological interested persons. That's a a jurist, uh, Jerome Scherf, and a theologian, Philip Melanchthon. We know him well, as well as two financial guys. We've got Gregory Brooke. He's the guy who read the Augsburg Confession, actually. He's the chancellor in that town. And uh, Hans von Greffendorf, he's uh, the chamberlain from uh, Weimar. So you have this combination of practical, financial, administrative eyes to look at what's going on and to see how we can improve the situation. And you've got the theologians. The instructions to the visitors is penned by Philip Melanchthon. That's what we're going to be reading from today. But Luther uh, very much promoted it. In fact, he ended up writing a preface for it when it was finally published late due to a paper delay in 1528. Fantastic setup there for us. Do we want to go ahead and jump into the preface then, Luther's preface that you just set up for us? I think we can, maybe with one other matter, and that's just to say the visitation sounds like a great idea, but it's not necessarily exciting for the people who live there because it always is similar. Taxes are going to go with this, right? Uh, this, is, this is for providing for the welfare. Everybody loves it when they come and pave your road. They're not as excited when you have to pay the bill. And so that's involved here, and people are nervous about that. You know, is this just a new master? We've, we don't have the pope over us anymore, but now we've got the prince, and what's, how tyrannical is he going to be? And is Luther supporting him in that tyranny? Uh, quickly, it becomes 
the tinder point for a fight among the Lutherans, uh, especially coming from John Agricola, who's known as kind of the founder of this antinomianism streak in Lutheranism. Because he says, here you are, you're bringing in the law, you're bringing in civil law even, to come and command the church, which means you're just, Luther, you're, you're contradicting yourself, you're no longer preaching the gospel, now you're preaching the law to everybody. And you see, we'll see in these visitation articles that emphasis on the regenerate life is definitely present in them. But Luther defends his teaching against that. He says, no, it was never my intention to dispense with good works, but simply to, as we know well, keep them out of our salvation. We don't earn salvation by them, but good works are the fruit that flows from the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ. Yeah, as you make that point, that is a really helpful piece of the context as well, because we can even think in our contemporary setting, you know, sometimes the rub when there are others from outside of our parish or our congregation that come in, you know, that, uh, you know, well, are you going to tell us what to do? And, you know, how dare you and those sorts of things. And I would say that we would definitely see some of that go on here. And so that's a good thing to highlight with Agricola, especially pushing back against that and some others as well. But Let's go ahead and jump into the preface then, Luther's preface. I'll just go ahead and start reading, and uh, Chaplain Denzer, you just go ahead and jump in when you have comments to make here. Oh, I, I guess I should also say that this is found in the American edition of Luther's Works, volume 40, and page 269 is where we're reading from. And so uh, again, this is Luther's preface to the visitation instructions. Both the Old and New Testaments give sufficient evidence of what a divinely wholesome thing it would be if pastors and Christian congregations might be visited by understanding and competent persons. For we read in Acts 9 that St. Peter traveled about in the land of the Jews. And in Acts 15, we are told that St. Paul, together with Barnabas, revisited all those places where they had preached. All his epistles reveal his concern for all the congregations and pastors. He writes letters. He sends his disciples. He goes himself. So the apostles, according to Acts 8, when they heard how the word had been received in Samaria, sent Peter and John there. Also, we read in the Old Testament how Samuel traveled around now to Ramah, now to Nob, now to Gilgal, and other places, not out of the delight for taking a walk, but out of love and a sense of duty in his ministry and because of the want and need of the people. Elijah and Elisha did the same as we read in the books of the kings. More than any, Christ has done this kind of work on behalf of all, and on this account, possessed no place on earth where he could lay his head or which he could call his own. This began even while he was in the womb, for he went with his mother over the hills to visit St. John, citing Luke 1, 39 there. So here's our biblical precedent for visitations, and Luther lays it all out there. Interesting, he kind of starts with most administrative, maybe, there in the, in the Acts of the Apostles. But finally, he goes back to the Old Testament and Christ himself and says, this is the sort of visitation we're interested in. It's become very common, I think, in the 20th century especially, to kind of draw a sharp distinction between Jesus and maybe even his apostles, certainly the Gospels, and then all of Paul's letters, right? And, and there's, there's this tendency to say, well, the church was some great kind of free, freewheeling movement that Jesus started, but then later it became institutionalized. Uh, That's not the view that Luther has. He sees that the institution is Christ's institution, and yes, all of the various governing matters which might be of the left-hand kingdom, which to a certain degree are left to our freedom, 
are done for the sake of love. I think this is already, in fact, getting to his point about good works and its relation to justification. It isn't that we want to be free of any kind of administration or organization. Far from it. We want all things to be done decently and in good order. And yes, we have great freedom in how we actually want to do it in this particular case or what we think would be better, or maybe we need to try a new idea because it hasn't been succeeding very well in this certain context. But all of those efforts, all of those decisions, all the places where our wisdom comes to bear arises out of love, service to the neighbor, and a desire to make sure that our teaching and our fellowship continues that we have the unity of the Spirit, which comes from the Holy Spirit, but we would like to maintain the bond of peace among us. That's where the visitations come from. Continuing on then with Luther's preface. Formerly in the days of the ancient fathers, the holy bishops diligently followed these examples, and even yet much of this is found in the papal laws. For it was in this kind of activity that the bishops and archbishops had their origin. Each one was obligated to a greater or lesser extent to visit and examine. For actually, bishop means supervisor or visitor, an archbishop a supervisor or visitor of bishops. To see to it that each parish pastor visits and watches over and supervises his people in regard to teaching and life. And the archbishop was to visit, watch over, and supervise the bishops as to their teaching. But in time, this office became such a show of secular pomp when the bishops made themselves princes and lords that the duty of supervision was turned over to a provost or vicar or dean. Then the provosts and deans and chapter heads became servile courtiers and left supervision to deputies who, with their notices of summons, plagued the people with their extortions and visited no one. So two things to note here. One, again, Lutherans are not interested in just jettisoning the whole history of the church and just going back to the apostles as if there have been no Christians since Acts. No, we recognize the value of the church, that there were Christians, that even the things we may have come to disagree with over time were done certainly from a good intention, right? Of course, good intentions don't make the result always good. Uh, But look, even Luther has something good to say about popes and bishops here, right? It's important to see the distinctions he makes. One, to recognize that that word supervisor, visitor, episcopus, bishop— They're all the same. Overseer, it's often translated in our Bibles. And he notes that every pastor is truly a bishop. That's a term that refers to all pastors, at least in the scriptures. Later on, of course, the term bishop becomes reserved for those pastors who are given supervisory roles by human decision, but supervisory roles over other pastors and multiple congregations, perhaps as well as their own congregation that they serve. And there's a value to that, right? That there's visitation, that we're all checking on each other's teaching, that we're actually working together. But there's also a negative side to it, that you tend to think those guys are in charge. If I have to answer them to them, maybe it's worth buttering them up a little bit. Pretty soon, these become figureheads, right? And Luther lays it out. The figureheads do what? Not their job. They just spend their time being popular or uh, living opulently, and, and then they get a bunch of lackeys to do their job for them, and they probably don't do their job very well either. They're just looking for ways to get money out of it too. All of this is discussed, by the way, in the Augsburg Confession, in the Apology, especially in the section on the power of bishops. And there it makes the case that our Lutheran understanding of the office of ministry is there is one office of the ministry, 
We're not looking to divide it up into bishops, presbyters, and deacons as a divine right division of the ministry, but rather these are, in the scriptures at least, equivalent terms. And by human right, we're always able to organize the church's structure as might serve that time. But these functions, the actions, what it is that the minister is doing, that's the important part, right? And that's to supervise, to give attention to the teaching, to watch over the flock of God. I really personally like this progression and like what you've set up for us because it answers that concern that you tagged on with the context there of, you know, well, we just came out from under the Pope and we saw how bad that was. So are you trying to do the same thing? And he grounds it in scripture and gives us the right understanding of it. I think it's just beautiful. All right, let's continue on then with Luther's preface here. Finally, when things reached their lowest, the deputies themselves remained at home in a warm house and sent, perchance, some rascal or ne'er-do-well who wandered around the countryside and in towns and what he had heard from mean mouths or gossip among men and women in the taverns, he reported to his supervisor, who then exercised his fleecing office, scraping and skinning innocent people of their goods and leaving murder and misery where there have been honor and good name. Luther is drawing on all the Old Testament passages that talk about shepherds who are actually fleecing their sheep, right? Uh, so, clever. Yeah, and traditional Luther writing here, too. I like it. The holy synods were forgotten. In brief, this is what befell so worthy an office, and nothing remained of it except the burdening and banning of people because of money, debts, and temporal goods, and the making of a divine order out of the bellowing of antiphons and versicles in churches. No attention is paid to how one teaches, believes, loves, how one lives a Christian life, how to care for the poor, how one comforts the weak or punishes the unruly, and whatever else belongs to such an office. They are altogether officious and gluttonous fellows who destroy what belongs to the people and do worse than nothing for them. This office has fared like all holy and ancient Christian doctrine and order. It has become the farce and contempt of the devil and antichrist with awful and terrible destruction of souls. This language should sound familiar to us because the similar sorts of things are said in our Book of Concord. And you notice how the abuse of a thing doesn't destroy the salutary use of it, but rather it confirms that it exists and unfortunately has been lost. That's what you see here, right? That all of these things that may have been established for a valuable purpose of oversight, even things like the daily offices, which is a valuable way of getting through the Psalter, has become this burden, right? Has become only something that is human and has lost its true Christian purpose, which is to teach, which is to investigate how life and faith are going among the Christians and that cares for other people. Can you comment on just that last line there real quick, too, and terrible destruction of souls? One of the things I like to highlight on this show quite a lot is that our confessions and what we say about the pastoral office and what we do in the church, and for Luther in his theology, you said, you know, that's his main focus. It's really about the care of souls. And so he's really worried here, it would seem, with the destruction of souls. Absolutely. I think it was Ambrose, an old saint, who said, in response to Paul writing to Timothy, he who desires the office of bishop desires a noble task. He says, notice, it's not the office and the desire to have that office and to be the guy wearing the hat or using the crozier. That's not what's noble. It's the task that is noble. So if you desire to do the task, that's the important part. It is so easy, we know this, to let a title go to our head, 
to let a position become a, 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 we even have phrases for it, right? We can rest on our laurels rather than do the work that that office is for. So Luther's concerned with that, and I think this holds true for all ministers, whether they're in the ecclesial offices or even in the state offices, right? Authorities are given by God for the sake of those who are under those authorities. It's not wrong to call them servants, certainly the ones in the church, but this is exactly what Jesus says, right? We're not to lord it over one another, but we're to serve one another. So to restore those offices then is to restore the service that cares for the Christian community, that brings the gospel, that helps consciences instead of creating scandal after scandal that just wrecks people's view of the church and its teaching, certainly of its ministerium. All right. With that as our focus, we continue on here. Who can describe how useful and necessary this office is in the Christian church? One can sense it in the abuses which have come through a period of deterioration and perversion, but no doctrine or vocation has remained sound or pure. On the contrary, a host of frightful sects and mobs, like the chapters and monasteries, have cropped up, whereby the Christian church has been altogether suppressed, faith has died out, love turned into wrangling and war, the gospel put in the shadow and purely human inventions, teachings, and dreams have ruled in place of the gospel. Surely the devil enjoyed success when he tore down this office and brought it under his own power, setting up instead these spiritual scarecrows and monk calves so that no one resisted him. Even when the office is rightly and diligently administered, it takes a lot of effort to exercise it properly, as Paul complained to the Thessalonians, Corinthians, and Galatians, for the apostles themselves had their hands full to keep things in order. What good purpose, then, can these lazy, sluggish bullies accomplish? Hmm. Yeah, notice uh, the mention of the monasteries as these sects, which is an interesting way of putting it. But just the idea that these authorities become the means by which all these groups are appointed. Most of the monasteries, most of the various orders arose because they saw the lack of activity from the bishops. They wanted to be spiritual centers of renewal, we might say, uh, which sounds very positive. But they, in turn, fall into the same trap, right? I think this is kind of the life cycle and the struggle that we all deal with. And it's why Reformation is necessary from time to time. Uh, But notice, the Reformation that Luther is interested in is a returning to what it was originally established for, to return to the Scriptures, to return to the mission of the church which comes from the scriptures, to return to the care of consciences. So whatever you're going to call them, bishops, superintendents, which is the term that the Lutherans are going to use a lot more, their purpose is what we're after. The task is noble. That's what we're looking for when we find a bishop. Going on here with the preface. Now that the gospel, through the unspeakable grace and mercy of God, has again come to us, or in fact has appeared for the first time, and we have come to see how grievously the Christian church has been confused, scattered, and torn, we would like to have seen the true Episcopal office and practice of visitation reestablished because of the pressing need. However, since none of us felt a call or definite command to do this, and St. Peter has not countenanced the creation of anything in the church unless we have the conviction that it is willed of God, no one has dared to undertake it. Preferring to follow what is certain and to be guided by love's office, which is a common obligation of Christians, we have respectfully appealed to the illustrious and noble prince and lord, John, Duke of Saxony, first marshal and elector of the Roman Empire, Landgrave of Thurginia, Margrave of Meissen, and most gracious lord and prince, 
constituted of God as our certain temporal sovereign, that out of Christian love, since he is not obligated to do so as a temporal sovereign, and by God's will for the benefit of the gospel and the welfare of the wretched Christians in his territory, his electoral grace might call and ordain to this office several competent persons. Here we have, by the way, a brief summary, and we don't want to get bogged down in this, but but of the kind of the approach of the Lutherans. We would have loved, of course, for the Pope to allow us to consecrate more bishops, just to continue as the Church has always done, and to make our theological reforms, of course. But if you remember the situation of these German territories, of course, the Pope would not allow any consecration of bishops. I mean, the, the Lutherans were interested in keeping the church order as it had been, but it was not possible. So you see this move, then, to appeal to the princes, which had its positives and definitely had its negatives, too. It is interesting that Luther makes this distinction here in this writing, right? They're not appealing to them because they're trying to say, answer the age-old question, who's more important, the pope or the king? They're not saying the king, but they're saying, you know, they're in the position to do it, and Christians are the ones who act out of love. So we're going to appeal to this guy because he has some authority and because he's a Christian. So he's going to do this out of love. I'll take the rest of the paragraph here. To this, his electoral grace through the goodness of God has graciously consented, and he's commissioned and commanded for this purpose these four persons, namely the gracious and honorable Herr Hans of Planets Knight, the worthy and learned Jerome Scherf, Doctor of Laws, the honorable and constant Osmus of Haubitz, and the worthy Philip Melanchthon Master. May God grant that it may be and become a happy example which all other German princes may fruitfully imitate and which Christ on the last day will richly reward. Amen. So, yeah, he lists the particular visitors at this time when these instructions were finally published. I'll go ahead and pick up. But the devil through his poisonous, worthless gossips can leave no godly work unstained and uncharactered. Already he has used our enemies to criticize and condemn us so that some boast that we have regretted our teaching and are retreating and recanting. Would to God that their boast were true, and that our recanting were accepted by them. Surely they would more approach us than we them, and would have to confirm our teaching and recant their stand. What he's speaking about here is what I mentioned before about the, the Agricola and others who accused Luther of rejecting the gospel because he wanted to have some kind of civil law being acknowledged and as well as his urging of good works in this document, uh, which Melanchthon was part of. So that's what he's already referring to. And remember, it finally got published uh, and printed in 1528 after they had already been doing their work for a couple of years. Therefore, I have been led to publish everything which the visitors have prepared and shown to our gracious Lord after I carefully reviewed it in collected form, making it known in published form, so that everyone may see that we are not trying to cover up or hide anything, but would gladly and sincerely seek light and permit it. While we cannot issue any strict commands as if we were publishing a new form of papal decrees, but are rather giving an account or report, which may serve as a witness and confession of our faith, we yet hope that all devout and peaceable pastors who find their sincere joy in the gospel and delight to be of one mind with us will act as St. Paul teaches in Philippians chapter 2, and will heed our Prince and gracious Lord. We hope that they will not ungratefully and proudly despise our love and good intention, but will willingly, without any compulsion, subject themselves in a spirit of love to such visitation, 
and with us peacefully accept these visitors until God the Holy Spirit brings to pass something that is better through them or through us. So you see, he's not trying to demand things. They're answering that charge that it's just a new pope in town. Uh, But rather the point is this is coming out of love, that the churches would care for one another and that we provide, I suppose what we'd say in our day, sustainability, right, to this Reformation. We're due a break here, but we have one paragraph left in the preface, so I'm going to push forward. We'll go a little longer here in the first half just to get the preface, and then we'll get into the theology of it on the other side. So this is the last paragraph here. If some obstinately want to set themselves against us and without good reason demand something else, as there always are undisciplined heads who out of utter perversity are able to do nothing in common or in agreement, but are different and self-centered in heart and life, We must separate these from ourselves as chaff on the threshing floor and refuse to accommodate ourselves to them. In this matter, too, we shall not neglect to solicit the help and counsel of our gracious Lord. While his electoral grace is not obligated to teach and to rule in spiritual affairs, he is obligated as temporal sovereign to so order things that strife, riding, and rebellion do not arise among his subjects. Even as the Emperor Constantine summoned the bishops to Nicaea, since he did not want to tolerate the dissension which Arius had stirred up among the Christians in the empire, and constrained them to preserve unity in teaching and faith, may God, the Father of all mercy, grant us through Jesus Christ, his dear Son, the spirit of unity and the power to do his will. Even though the finest spirit of unity prevails among us, we still have our hands full to do good and to be established by the power of God. What would happen if there were to be disunity and disagreement among us? The devil has become neither pious nor devout this year, nor will he ever be so. So let us be on guard and anxious to keep, as Paul teaches, the spiritual unity and the bond of love and of peace. Amen. All right, so that concludes Luther's preface here. So on the other side of the break here, we will pick up the theology and the instructions that are in these Saxon Visitation articles as we continue talking with Chaplain Sean Denzer. And you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUL. The word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the Word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Concord Matters as we continue talking with Chaplain Sean Denzer about the 1528 Saxon Visitation Articles. Once again, not found in the Book of Concord, but we are working from the American edition of Luther's Works, Volume 40. And we just read in the first half of the show and commented on Luther's preface and set all of this up. And now we're going to get into the instructions themselves here in the second half of this show. And I'm going to pick up on page 277, once again, of that American edition of Luther's Works, Volume 40, and uh, read this paragraph and let you comment on this, Chaplain Denzer. These two are the first elements of Christian life, repentance or contrition and grief, and faith through which we receive the forgiveness of sins and are righteous before God. Both should grow and increase in us. 
The third element of Christian life is the doing of good works, to be chaste, to love and help the neighbor, to refrain from lying, from deceit, from stealing, from murder, from vengefulness, and avenging oneself, etc. See echoes there a lot of what you used to set this up for us. And so uh, go ahead and give us, how does this help us understand what's going on with these instructions here? Yeah, Melanchthon, uh, as a school teacher, gives us a very orderly approach, similar to the Augsburg Confession, where he labels the articles. The first article is simply called The Doctrine, and here he's talking about the gospel. Um, He's talking about we need to preach faith, we need to preach the salvation in Jesus Christ. But what is interesting is he also is trying to guard against true antinomianism. Remember, they'd just been accused of this very thing, that they were rejecting the law of God, or that they were somehow uh, rather that they were imposing God's law, and the true Christian thing to do would, would be to ignore God's law because we're in the gospel now. And they say, no, by no means. The law is useful for working repentance. In fact, that must come first. People need to repent of their sins, but also that the law is the content of what true good works look like. And those who are Christians, those who have the Spirit of God, are not opposed to these good works at all, but rather that's the fruit that begins to take root in them. So we have kind of these three things, and those are the first two articles are on the doctrine, which is quickly on justification, and on the Ten Commandments, true Christian prayer, etc. It's interesting that as he moves on, he comes to these trios over and over again, repentance, faith, and good works, so repentance and faith and holy living. Uh, Really, you can see these at work in the first three parts of Luther's small catechism, which comes from this time as well. So so you have to think about this. Here's Melanchthon writing for these very practical visitation articles that are being taken around, instructions to the visitors as they're examining the life of the congregation as well as the pastor, their ministry. And Luther is, at the same time, writing his preface that we've heard from the small catechism, writing his simple explanations for how they can teach if they need more help, and we see the same kind of themes coming, right? So we have, we have the Ten Commandments, right, which show us both what our good works ought to look like, but also how we failed. We have the Gospel, where it tells what Christ has done for us in the Creed. And we have the Lord's Prayer, which prays for the good works and prays for the growth that the Holy Spirit gives. Well, I also found it interesting, as you mentioned prayer there, too, and of course, big connection with the Lord's Prayer, but you mentioned that Luther's going to be working on his catechism alongside this. But also, he has kind of written a catechism of sorts on prayer as well at the same time. He has his book on prayer that models a lot of what you see written here also in this section on true Christian prayer as well. And so, uh, again, I think this brings back to the point that the concern here is how are we teaching the gospel in the parishes and caring for the souls? That's really a definite key focus here of what the spirit of all of this visitation is about. Absolutely. Absolutely. and. I would say that these, the article's content, uh, which I wish we could read all of it, I think is a very helpful thing and a practical thing for Christians as they're considering themselves individually. Imagine that to take kind of a personal visitation. Uh, I don't know if you can visit yourself, but this is self-examination. Consider the conscience, consider your life of prayer. And I think in many ways, these writings are still fresh for today. And there's only a little bit of it that you'll have to update for our modern times. One that's really great is the section after the commandments, after prayer. In fact, in prayer, he goes a lot into civil authority, the fourth commandment. Uh, But tribulation, he says the third part of Christian life 
is doing good works, but belongs to that also the knowledge of how one should meet tribulation. And it talks about how tribulation is sent from God, whether that's sickness or whether that's danger or anything else, and that we're to receive it as those who are being chastened by a loving Father. In the midst of these, we're to call upon him. We're to confidently believe that God will help and that we're to offer our prayers. We should stand in our duties, and we should be confident that Christ will protect us through it. This is suffering the cross, bearing suffering, and this is an important part of the teaching. It doesn't come to us as its own article in the small catechism, but it's all over the Book of Concord, as we've seen before on this show. And I think it's something that's especially useful for Christians, that the Christian life by no means means we have a free pass or now everything's just happy all the time. No, we still continue to suffer many things. Uh, All around the world, people are suffering right now. And and we've experienced some suffering in a way that we haven't in our country for a while. Uh, We should receive it as Christians. And so they're instructing them on that also. Yeah, and I think that that's picked up really well in the last paragraph on that section on tribulation again in Luther's works here, uh, volume 40, page 287. We have given these instructions to the pastors and explained to them that they should clearly and correctly present to the people these most important matters of the Christian life, which we have here described, namely repentance, faith, and good works, while passing by many other things of which the poor masses understand little. Yeah, so you spoke earlier about the focus on the Christian conscience, and that's exactly what Melanchthon says here, too. It's the first thing that comes up in the instructions is not the detailed nuts and bolts of our position on the Lord's Supper. It's not what we think worship should look like or how to organize your school, but it's stuff that's geared toward every single Christian, the life of repentance and faith and holy living. So absolutely, it's focused on the individual Christian and caring for them. And that's the duty of these pastors and school teachers. As you mentioned, that we see echoes of how the catechism is formed and so forth. The next sections then are the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of the body and blood of the Lord. Go ahead and give us what are these sections talking about here in these instructions. Very basic teaching and in a simple style. It's designed, I think, as a, something that can be imitated by the preachers, but it's especially, again, for these visitors, looking at what the teaching is to make sure that if any of the pastors are not teaching this, that they're corrected so they can teach rightly. Um, I, I think it's interesting to note the different points that he makes about the Lord's Supper. The first is that everyone needs to believe that it's the true body and blood of Christ. Second, that people should receive both the bread and the wine. Remember, they're coming out of the Middle Ages where only the bread was given to the people, but the Lutherans want to follow Christ's institution. What's especially worth noting is Luther has a whole section in here about being patient in introducing both kinds in the sacrament to these congregations that haven't had it for, well, everyone's lifetime. I mean, back well into the Middle Ages. The elector, the prince, did not want this in here when they published it. Luther insisted on keeping it, which I think shows his conservative, cautious, and pastoral approach that, yes, he knows this is wrong. It needs to be stopped. We need to follow Christ's institution, but he wants to be patient. He doesn't want anybody to think they're coming in with their own ideas, changing everything like crazy. He wants to be patient, and for a while, for a very temporary amount of time, Luther is willing to abide this. This is exactly his fight with Karlstadt and the radical reformers. 
who think they can just get rid of everything. Now that we're spiritual, we know that external rights aren't commanded by God. We can just get rid of them all and live this kind of imaginary spiritual life. And Luther says, no way. In fact, we want to keep the things that are valuable. And even the things that are not valuable, like this idea of withholding the cup from the people, we're going to be patient and gentle about it. Because, And here we see Luther's measured approach to the visitation, right? He does not want to impose the law on people without also addressing their hearts with the gospel. He's not trying to baptize a whole country at sword point or something, or convert them all to Lutheranism by the sword. But he wants them to be convicted and convinced by the word of God, as well as encouraged in this. So, Yeah, you mentioned, you know, wish I had time to read through all of this. You begin to see, especially in this section, but really, as at least as I read through all of this in preparation to talk about this with you, I really see Luther talking about the importance of visitation to kind of you know, see those who are obstinate, you're going to deal with them in one way. You can almost see echoes of like Jesus, you know, dealing with the Pharisees and religious leaders of his day as, you know, those are the obstinate ones. And then there's the uninformed, I might say, or those who often Luther refers to as the simple. And I think these words that you just talked about are reflecting, look, these folks are simple and uninformed. They've lived their whole lives with it, as you said. And we can be patient and teach them and give them the information that it may be born of the gospel, and it'll take hold a lot better then. Spoken like a true bishop, Pastor Smith, and you are one, and we see that exactly, right? So these, you know, human right bishops that are coming, these visitors, aren't imposing. They're acting like pastors in the sense that they are being patient with the weak, opposing the obstinate, just like you said. That is exactly what a parish pastor has to do. That's also the way that a visitor at a larger scale ought to act. And so there's a way in which their example of how they come and visit these congregations is something that the local pastors, if they're going to be evangelical pastors, might imitate. So, On the rest of the Lord's Supper, it's very interesting. There's also a section that on something we might call closed communion. He says, as for the people who won't learn or practice the doctrine, one should simply offer them neither kind and let them go. In other words, there is a need for the pastors to turn away those who either don't believe what we believe, refuse to be taught, or are are living a life that is not penitent, but is happy to go on disobeying the word of God. Such people are not to be given to the sacrament, says. And he says, most importantly, the most fundamental thing is that one teach the reason for the use of the sacrament and how to be properly prepared so that we can receive it. So notice, again, the proper use of the sacrament is what we're after. That old rule that the abuse of a thing doesn't destroy the proper use is in play both for visitations themselves and for the content of their visitation here. As we go forward then into the next section, you talk about repentance and connected and especially probably more in the Middle Ages, it would have been a part of their regular observance, whereas maybe we don't, especially in American Christianity, think much about penance. The next section is called True Christian Penance. Give us a little about what that's talking about. Oh, I'd love to talk for a long time on this. I think it is similar to what we have in the, especially the Apology to the Augsburg Confession. But just like Melanchthon writes it there, there's an emphasis on repentance at all levels, on kind of a general, daily and constant, you know, you don't want to say episodic, but rather just perpetual, maybe, repentance, this attitude of repentance that Christians are to have as well as the nuts and bolts of when do you confess, how do you confess, what do you confess, 
and what is the pastor's duty. All of it goes together. And I think this is something, you know, if we have in some respects lost the regular practice of individual confession absolution and we're attempting to restore it because of its great value, this shows us the great value of it, is that it, it is a direct caring for the Christian conscience. It is attending to repentance in a concrete way, but repentance itself is the whole life of a Christian. And so in his context, people would have been very familiar with confession absolution, or at least the confession part, but needed to be corrected about penance and about what it means. But Melanchthon is concerned, and that was Luther's concern as well, that the conscience knows why we're confessing and what we're coming for, the forgiveness of our sins. The next section then would be the human order of the church, which I would guess would probably be something that you could also talk quite a lot about. Oh, yeah. It's very very interesting, all the little things that are discussed. Uh, Christian freedom, there's something on free will that's easy to be misunderstood. Interesting, there's a whole section on the Turks, that is, the impending attack of the Muslims who are going threatening Vienna, of course, at this time, uh, whether or not we should pray against them or or for them, whether God wants this judgment, so we just have to accept it. And uh, so that's an interesting section, too. But Just to say briefly, what is the order that they give for the church? It is essentially what we've seen for a long time in the Lutheran church. Keeping of the daily offices, especially in places where there are schools, maybe reduced just to matins and vespers, morning and evening. Many of the traditions are here, if you're aware of them. They always read the New Testament reading in the morning at matins. They always read the Old Testament reading in the evening at vespers and still singing the Te Deum and the Magnificat, the Benedictus, things that are in our hymnal to this day, but very much in keeping, really, with what had always been the practice. So not making great changes other than maybe to reduce the large expectations. Similarly, as a long section that gets into a little more detail on festivals and church feasts, that many of them should be kept. But what's, I think, most interesting in this is the attention on teaching? What's the purpose of praying the daily offices? It's to hear those psalms. It's to learn these key New Testament canticles that preach the gospel so well, and it's to let the, the Word of God be preached on. So very quickly, even as he's you know enumerating all sorts of things, like we observe Monday, Thursday, we do Good Friday and Holy Week, we keep the passions as something we read, He's also talking about the content of the sermons. Uh, From page 308 in the American edition, it's interesting. He lays out the catechism, even as the catechisms are being written, right? Actually, this would have been done before Luther put his catechisms together. But he talks about the servants and the young people come to church in the afternoon, so we recommend that on Sunday afternoons there be constant repetition through preaching and exposition of the Ten Commandments, the Articles of the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. The Ten Commandments are to be used so that the people are exhorted to fear God. The Lord's Prayer is to be used so that people know what to pray. And the articles of the Creed are to be proclaimed, and the people taught carefully these three most important articles in the Creed, creation, redemption, sanctification. For we consider it useful for people to learn that God still creates, daily renews, gives growth, etc. And thus the people are exhorted to faith and to prayer for food, life, health, and everything else and to learn how our sins are forgiven through Christ, as well as the third article on sanctification and the work of the Holy Spirit. All of this sounds so familiar to us because we know the catechism so well, but this is laying out in a very simple way the way a, church, a church's life, the ministry of the pastor, the life of the individual families all works together. 
and that in an evangelical church, it's not without order, but it's an order that is all directed to serve the forgiveness of sins. I think Luther has this in the large catechism, right, where he says, in this Christian church, everything is so ordered so that it's nothing but the forgiveness of sins all the time. Uh, I can't help but think that that word order is coming out of his mind here as they've uh, returned from the visitations. I love how you focus on that it's on the teaching. And once again, this, this is the beauty of order. And we have about five minutes left, and I want to get two more things from you before uh, we have to wrap up this episode. The first is, are there any other things that you'd like to highlight from these instructions for us? And then the second is, again, as I think about church order and the catechesis, the teaching that's going on in the parishes, are there some contemporary implications for us that we might be able to think about and consider? But start first with, are there other things that you'd like to highlight from these instructions? Again, so much here, but just some highlights for us. Well, I'm not going to cover it all, the large section on schools, which gets into a lot more detail. Remember, this is Melanchthon. He's remembered even by non-Lutherans as the preceptor of Germany. And there's a big section on organizing your schools that even goes down into curriculum. But it's very interesting to see their attention to that and the focus on this being necessary for the Christian church as well as for the republic, that we would have knowledgeable people, that our kids would not be dolts, but that, in fact, we'd be able to have pastors and servants in the government as well. Uh, I think it's very interesting that they talk about the office of superintendent, the pastor, the one who's uh, the superintendent of all the other priests in their region. So this is kind of a human right bishop, you might say. And they list four things that his attention is to be devoted to. One, the doctrine, to make sure that all the parishes nearby are teaching correctly from the Word of God, the gospel truly and rightly proclaimed, the holy sacraments administered according to the institution of Christ. This sounds familiar from the Augsburg Confession. Two, that the preachers need to be exhorted to godly life. Three, that the superintendent will instruct and correct wherever there is error. And four, that successors are to be examined so that no incompetent pastor assumes the office. So this is kind of the work of the visitor happening at the local level. So it's not just, you know, the prince comes in and you can expect big taxes to go up afterwards, but that we want this doctrine in life, this focus on the conscience and the whole parish life to continue. And so this office of superintendent, not commanded by God, but instituted by the church for the sake of this order, we'll see that that continues. Go ahead and wrap us up then with... What are some uh, contemporary thoughts for us then that stem from this? The visitation articles show us that no Lutherans are not antinomians and no, we're not a bunch of disordered rabble. On the other hand, we see that there's always this tension, right? There's always this frustration. And I'm sure there's a huge frustration for us as Americans who tend to like to do whatever we want all the time. Or in other ways, we're we're happy to just go along with the crowd and, and do whatever we're told to. We're really split personalities, I suppose. Uh, But to see that whenever there is church order, which there must be, whenever there's organization, whenever we are deciding what it is that we're going to continue and agree upon as Christians, whenever the synod in convention, as where the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, whenever resolutions are made, whenever there is this kind of exercise of supervision by synod presidents and district presidents and even circuit visitors, What is the purpose of it? 
The purpose of it is to attend to the Christian conscience with the Word of God, that the gospel would be preached rightly, that Christ and his forgiveness would be reigning in every congregation, even in every home, and that, yes, the fruit of good works would arise from that rather than just from being bossed around or being compelled to it. So I think we have both the warning and the positive example laid out for us here, that, yeah, it's easy for all of this to become institution-serving. And uh, that's a good rebuke for me, too, as somebody who works here in the headquarters of our synod. But when everything is working properly, it is to do, just like the large catechism says the church is supposed to do, that everything is so ordered that we receive the forgiveness of sins, that we're growing in Christ and in his teaching and in his word, as well as in good works every day. And I think we see a great example in Luther and Melanchthon here, and uh, even though this isn't a document that ends up in the confessions of our church, uh, probably because it has so much practical and sensitive to that situation, we see how it matches entirely with the teaching that we have, as well as the interested in the practice of that teaching that is shown in the Book of Concord. Absolutely. And also, as you mentioned there too, as the director of worship, who encourages order for our churches and how we worship and provides teaching and encouragement for all of those things, I think once again, as you kindly said of me as as a true bishop, uh, I'm very thankful that when we have people like yourself that serve as a true bishop in such roles in our church body as well. Very faithfully done, and thank you for that, and for coming on the show and giving us a little bit of history, insight, and teaching about these visitation articles. You're welcome. Always a great honor to have you on. That's Chaplain Sean Denzer, who is the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and he's also Chaplain at the Synod's International Center. Always a great pleasure to have you on with us. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today, and until next time, keep confessing, church.